Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. I'm very excited today to introduce Kate Dillon. Hello, Kate. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. Kate, let me just step through very briefly um, a little bit about you and then we'll get right into this conversation. So for our listeners, Kate Dillon is the founder and creative director of luxury work handbag e-tailer, She Lion Bags. Kate is also the National Transformation Lawyer at Gilbert and Tobin. Kate's very serious and intentional about her portfolio career and divides her time between uh, legal and entrepreneurial pursuits and is anchored by a belief that in today's business environment, success and leadership is only limited by your imagination. Kate recently pivoted SheLion, and I'd love to explore some of that when we get into the conversation. But firstly, welcome. Thank you. And to the audience, for anyone who hasn't come across you before, Kate, I would just love us to jump right into your journey um, and to tell us about why you are who you are. Gosh, that's a big question. <laughs> why I am who I am. <laughs> Um, well, uh, I suppose um, I should probably tell you I am a self-proclaimed extrovert and I'm absolutely a closet creative lawyer, as uh, most lawyers are, um, unsurprisingly, maybe surprisingly for people who aren't lawyers, but most lawyers have some incredible creative skills that they're hiding under their desk or wherever. Um, so I think, and, and I didn't um, ever aspire to be a lawyer, I must say. I was um, a very, very keen, uh, dramatic, thespian person um, going all through VCE. And uh, it was very much my parents that encouraged me um, to look at law as something that was, you know, uh, equivalent to acting <laughs> I don't know that it actually is um, but having said that I did do a drama major in my arts degree with my legal degree and um, completing a legal degree was absolutely a fantastic thing to do um, not exactly like being an actor but um, still fantastic all the public speaking side of it is fantastic absolutely. and um, and then I think through that journey uh, I've always loved exploring things like fashion because it was another creative outlet. Um, pulling pieces together and looks together was always something that energised me and made me feel great. Um, and when I was on exchange during law school, I, I met someone who told me about fashion law, which was a thing in New York. And I thought, oh, my God, this is what I need to do. Um, so came back and studied for the bar exam um, to go and be qualified in America. It was 220 hours of um, online lectures. Wow. And like they send you these 
textbooks and past exams they honestly came and they were taller than me like you like phone book like yellow phone book style books of past exams <laughs> and you like hide in a room for like four months my poor husband who was just my boyfriend at the time um would bring me slurpees and things <laughs> as I was studying in the front room of my parents house very long time ago and uh yeah it was like the year before I started work as an article clerk that gives away my age because you don't call um junior lawyers article clerks anymore and I remember waiting um so I did all the study and then I flew over to America to do the exam and um actually it's over two days um and they I think you do six hours the first day and six hours the second day from memory it was very long and there's somebody pulled the fire alarm in the hotel we were staying. So they evacuated everybody at three in the morning um, between the two exams. Right. And um, apparently it happens most years because it's a like a psych tactic to freak people out. Wow. Yeah, And there's all the, there were so many people that were having panic attacks in the room and everything like very hectic. But anyway, um, it was the best thing I think I've ever done, um, the experience anyway. And coming back, I'd obviously told everybody because, you know, passing the bar exam is like a big ego thing, you know, I'm a New York attorney. And so I was sitting there on the day that you get the results, like refreshing the computer screen, waiting for that to come through. And um, I failed. Oh, my God. I like, you know, that when your like stomach just drops out of your body and you're just like, I have told so many people and and everybody is just like expecting this to go well and oh my goodness I just want the four to like swallow me up and like take me away um and so uh very upset um I you know told my family and told my then boyfriend husband now um and my mother very matter matter of factly um said yeah, that, that's disappointing, Kate, but just do it again. <laughs> and I was like, oh, um, okay. And uh, so that's what happened. And I think that's been um, a massive part of what shaped me um, today. I think that's um, that suffering that public, very public failure and then that complete fire in my belly to make sure that I pass the next time. And then the sheer determination to get up before work um, and study and then go to work full time and then study after work obviously having an incredibly supportive partner and um, family around me and and, and firm um, you know dogged to passing the next time and I did so the uh, first time Kate you didn't miss out by much did you well, I think it was, I always say it was 1%, but I actually was thinking about it, it's, it was 0.1% because you needed 665 to pass and I got 655. So it was 10 marks off what you needed and you needed to get a, effectively a 65% on each of the 32 subjects. So it wasn't like an average okay. um, high credit. It was like on each one. Um, and yeah, so uh, essentially I think it was nerves because 10 marks is nothing, Point, it's 0.01%, yeah. Uh, and then so that, that made it worse, obviously, but then doing it the second time I passed by a long way. Um, but I feel like having had that experience now, I am, I've done the public failure thing. I know what to expect and now I'm happy to embrace that feeling again. So I'm much more open to leaning into fear and taking risks um, much more so than I would have been prior to that because I've walked that um, 
unintentionally, um, but I have absolutely felt that viscerally that I feel like um, that was that was a huge gift. Is that your mum? Like you know, is that? Yeah, it's both mum and dad, but it's it's, it's my grandfather's. Uh, mantra that he used to say all the time um, anything's possible with a bit of guts and determination mm. and uh, I don't think there's anything more true than that uh, than living that experience and um, yeah I, don't, I, I feel like that's like ingrained in my values from the way my parents um, have brought me up to the fact that you know my mother very empathetically but matter-of-factly turned around and said this is disappointing just do it again <laughs> Without knowing your mother, I can kind of picture that. So um. yeah, well, she's the most loving, wonderful maternal person ever. But she's also, you know, very uh, business savvy, powerhouse, strong, resilient, amazing role model of a mother as well. She obviously, also loves law and order. I'm just looking for where the drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, my father actually flew over with me um, to New York the first time I did the bar as support, like to cook meals for me, which was so lovely. Um, and he religiously watched Law and Order while we were there. And I'm like, it's really not the same, Dad. <laughs> uh, but anyway. <laughs> so did you, um, did you ever look back um, towards acting? You know, as, um, that was obviously a real passion for you at a certain point. It was, it was. I even did a NIDA, I even tried out for NIDA at, at one point and completely ruined a Scottish accent that I was trying to do in the solo piece. So um, another go now. I know. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, the thing was that you couldn't um, postpone, you couldn't put your law degree on hold uh, for more than three years and NIDA was three years, so it was kind of like, oh, well, I, 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 I think I'll just finish this first and then maybe I'll go back. And then I kind of got carried away with the fashion law piece and then swept up into the whole articles and uh, doing a master's because um, understanding the fashion law piece, I went over and met um, the head of Fordham University fashion law masters, Susan Scarfidi, who is this amazing woman who is like, um, you know, the head attorney on all those spectacular New York cases that are mainly IP, you know, like Le Bouton with like the colour trademark and so many other amazing cases. Anyway, she was the head of fashion law and so I wanted to go and meet with her and find out, you know, how I could get into this because you have to basically do a master's in America to specialise. Yeah. And... Um, had gone over there it was GFC time anyway when we went so we, we were sort of had our backs against the wall anyway um but I would encouraged my husband that it was very important that I buy this very expensive pair of um hunter boots because they were you know all the rage at the moment I had to look um on trend when I was meeting this woman who was head of fashion law and it was torrential rain in um New York at the time and I, I remember going to meet her I, I would have looked like a drowned rat, but I did have my hunter boots on. And uh, she greeted me and I was just like, oh, my gosh, she was like head to toe in couture, like matching everything, a spectacular tailored suit that had like bits that came off and like fishnets with multiple layers of stockings that looked super cool and knee-high lace-up boots. So I was just like, oh, my God, I'm going to throw my hunter boots out the window. This is just ridiculous. I have wet hair everywhere. I'm like, oh, I want to do fashion law. <laughs> 
um, so the advice is not to turn up to an interview in your hunter gum boots. Probably uh, not. No, 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 probably not. And probably um, buy one of those massive golf umbrellas too because a standard umbrella just doesn't cut it with the rain in New York. So uh, there then? What? She was the most beautiful woman too. So many women um, have lifted me up in my journey. Uh, but she was really frank and said, you know, it's GFC. International is like first people out at the moment. It's not the right time to pursue this. You have to live here to do this course. You know, it's a couple of hundred K American to do. You can't do it by correspondence. If I was you, I would go back to Australia and do a master's in IP um, mm -hmm. and then come back once the GFC um, you know, recovers and and talk to me then because a master's in IP is very similar. And so that's what I did. I, I came home and started doing a master's at Melbourne and um, actually did a master's in commercial law because I wanted to have one subject in construction because my husband's a builder, uh, but all the rest are in IP. Okay. And um, moved from a financial services corporate team into an IP team once I had finished the master's. And um, then having worked there for a few years, realised that I probably actually wanted to start my own fashion business rather than just do law for fashion clients. And so stepped out um, in, I think it was September 2014 mm -hmm. um, and, and left. Um, scary thing to do. I mean, you know, on an eyelash, not like, you know, you... you it was really like a scary thing to do um, and started SheLine because I had seen this opportunity. It was a creative outlet I wanted to explore. Uh, it was something that my husband supported and, um, yeah, I spent the sort of back end of 2014 doing all of the courses at RMIT um, and night school in clutch bag, gusset bag, tote bag, handbag construction, leather appreciation, um, actually doing the pattern making, understanding all the processes behind it, and then doing all of the illustrator and Photoshop courses three times. First time to learn the skills and the second and third time to network like a crazy, strange, creepy person because everybody in there um, was someone from a big brand that was trying to upskill their um, expertise to a digital level and they were willing to share like you know where I should go to source leather and and who I would get involved to make sure things were ethical and responsible and um, which different countries specialized in which different types of techniques and um, who were the logistics providers that dealt with really small businesses <laughs> and what was a reasonable price to pay for x or y and and uh, what's the ethics around and negotiating on this point and do you do that in Australia and do you do that overseas and should I work with people in Turkey or Italy or China or Romania or all these places I had no idea um, specialised in these different areas and where do you buy zips from <laughs> and um, yeah where do you get things tested I mean all these questions that um, I didn't I mean you don't know what you don't know when you step into a new um, space and I think that is absolutely a gift and a threat at the same time. It's the gift because you bring that beginner's mindset. So you absolutely ask the questions that the people that live in that space don't ask and don't think about because it's um, not fresh to them. So you bring a really fresh perspective, which I think was um, 
lucky for me because I think people found it endearing that I would ask these questions that were so off the wall because I wasn't formally trained in any of these areas and I didn't know what was the right way to behave from an industry perspective. I would just flat out ask and then having had a law background, I was quite direct. I mean, I, I like to think of myself as a very friendly person, but I think the feedback has been that I'm like quite direct with what I with what I ask and uh yeah I mean sometimes people would just be like who you think you are but other times they were like oh that's hilarious that you're asking that <laughs> yes you know have you thought of this have you thought of that um and I think throughout the process and also with this new um project I've been working on I just can't explain the magic behind people who barely know you going out of their way to help you mm. if you're willing to say, I don't know the answer and I'd really appreciate your help. And um, there's some people that, I mean, I've formed, you know, really strong friendships with these people after the fact, but people that I are, are a very loose acquaintance or someone that I've possibly never met that I've cold called um, have done things that have just changed the whole course of the business, saved me huge amounts of money, um, given me insight into ways to conduct myself that have changed outcomes. Um, I want to get right into that. There's so many things. Um, there's so many things that I think anyone in any industry or role can take out in terms of their way of approaching networking or, or any kind of situation and you know one of the things that I'm not surprised at all to hear you say is how generous people are when you ask mm. um, people most people I think are really really prepared to go out of their way and and help um, Kate can I take you back then so you and I could probably talk handbags all day because I love a good handbag and <laughs> sheline bags are lovely so go and have a look at them um, if you're not aware of them but at a certain point, you so you stepped out to start She Lion, but then went back in to kind of, you know, with a balance between the two. Tell us about that. So I stepped out completely because I really wanted to understand the nuts and bolts of what I was doing. I think that's the legal training behind and the fact that I'm always wanting to know the how and the why rather than just the what. Um, and I didn't feel comfortable being quite that vulnerable just um, outsourcing everything I wanted to be able to talk with some level of sophistication about what I wanted and also not be taken advantage of because I needed to know what it is I needed and didn't need yeah. um, but yeah with any startup you know you're not going to make any money to begin with and um, yeah I needed to contribute I think as well so um, so six months into really networking and trying to pull the business together that hadn't launched yet um, there was this role that popped up at Gilbert and Tobin that was a maternity cover position that was for uh, drafting boilerplates and um, like contract law kind of specialist role um, in the knowledge team uh, that was a flexible arrangement on three days a week. And um, I thought, oh, you know, that's that's pretty good. You know, it, it was, you know, great pay and three days in a law firm, in a, in, a, in a fabulous law firm that's very prestigious. I mean, you know, that's okay. I didn't have any children at that point. And so um, I was sort of doing three days on the business and three days in the firm. Um, and, you know, much like anybody who knows, you know, when you run your own business, you don't really stop doing your business and you're always thinking about your business. But um 
yeah, that was fabulous. And uh, that very organically turned into uh, this, well, as I'm sure you're getting the vibe from if you're listening to this, um, I am very much, I draw energy from other people and I draw energy from having conversations and connecting. And I was not that person in the corner drafting the the boilerplates. I was absolutely walking around and talking to people and uh, writing firm-wide updates about things and then connecting people and saying, oh, you know, so-and-so is working on this. Did you know that? Because you could probably leverage that with what you're doing. And, um, oh, is that really irritating you, that process? Gosh, because there's actually this app that does that that you should look into because that will save you time. And then that very organically turned into this sort of connector role where um, I was moved into more of an innovation space and called an innovation lawyer and then called an innovation strategy lawyer. And then all of a sudden we started growing an innovation team and then I was national transformation lawyer and then we started having people that um, were lawyers and non-lawyers involved in this team that had grown from just a knowledge space because knowledge lawyers act like that anyway if they're you know, social and, and, and want to engage with the lawyers, which most of them are. Um, uh, yeah, so that was just a very natural progression. And, and then I think the two were mutually reinforcing because the um, ability to be able to connect more with lawyers because you're sort of operating on an in-house counsel type basis where you're receiving queries from lawyers to help find um, examples on the system that are relevant to them quickly um, or to advise on whether or not they know you're aware of other people um, working on similar things or that have certain expertise or that they can go and talk to about things. Um, but then it turned into also advising clients on this critical thinking and process improvement and business design piece that's like re I'm really passionate about, mm -hmm. um, which so much of it is been where SheLine has come from because not only is it the fashion piece that I really wanted and the creativity and the design um, and the playing with all the handbags and the different leathers and textures and finishes yeah. but it's also about uh, about understanding um, a need that needs to or a problem that needs to be solved and coming up with a solution that meets that need and making sure that you do have the right problem and then you have the right solution that is meeting that user's problem and, and adapting that and being aware that things change and um, things have a shelf life and of always putting out different fires when you're running a business because it's, it's just constantly problem solving and I think I am a bit addicted to that feeling when you find the solution to something um, or you help someone else uh, come to a solution and you see them have that aha moment, um, that's beautiful. So hey, you have always, um, um, you know, continued to invest in yourself. I know you've done a lot of different study from, from time to time um, and I want to ask you about one of them in particular, but it's just interesting. I spoke the other day to Tony Johnson, who was the CEO of EY until, um, until recently, and he was given advice early in his career that said, write your, write your update your CV every six months. And really what that was about was making sure you were learning a new skill every six months. Have you been intentional about that or what? Absolutely. Yeah. I think you should update your CV every week. Uh-huh. Uh, because particularly as a woman, um, you 
you do so many projects, you do so many things and you often have so many other things on in the background that you don't remember all of the projects that you've run, put together the wins. So it's almost like you should have a to-do list that is essentially your list of wins that you've achieved that month, even that month, um, so that you make sure that you are capturing all that amazing goodness on your CV. Because when it comes to the time when you actually have to update your CV, you can't remember any of those things that you've done. And for sure, as God made little apples, there will be a million things that you have done that are fantastic. Okay. Um, and to be able to have just a tally of things that you're working on that you're proud of, that you don't necessarily have to add to your CV, um, but that you can visualise and see and build on, um, I think is great for building your own ability to be able to talk about what you've done in a confident way that doesn't feel bolshy, that doesn't feel arrogant, that is just matter of fact and I'm proud that I've done that, mm. um, but also helps you capture that into your CV. But yes, I, I absolutely love learning. I think the process of learning is something um, that I really enjoy. And I'm a very curious person. And I, I feel like the more you know, the more you don't know. Mm. And I think that just drives the need to want to learn more. <laughs> so if, we, if we move our conversation then into um, women in leadership, um, and your experiences as a female um, navigating your career. I wanted to kick off by asking you, you've been incredibly lucky to um, complete the executive program in women's leadership at Stanford. Yes. Yeah, that was amazing. And I was going to do it last year before COVID started. So tell yes. me all about it. Tell me what do you think were kind of the key, maybe three things that you took away from doing that program? Whoa, I don't know that I could just give you three. It was, there was just so many amazing things that came out of that program. Um, there were all these really practical skills about navigating power dynamics um, that nobody teaches you in any setting, really. Um, there were all these skills around the different way men and women communicate and how to leverage those things and how to navigate with and communicate with power and with purpose and to hold that and feel comfortable in that. Mm -hmm. um, there were so many gems about different leadership styles and you being able to find one that suits you and feels authentic to you mm -hmm. and only being able to really reach your potential when you feel that it's authentic and that is it is who you are. Um, and so there was a lot of work on all of the participants actually you know, getting to know who they were if they didn't already feel comfortable with who they were as well. Um, it was the most amazing course. I would highly recommend you doing it as soon as you're able to travel uh, to California. Um, yeah, Maggie. I did do, so Berkeley have one as well. Yes. Um, and, and in this series, um, the professor at Berkeley who coordinates that is actually joining us. So I'll be interviewing her. It was also fabulous. Yes. Uh, but I'd love to do the Stanford one. Um, yes you know, in person as well. So, so let's come to your career then. So there's a point where you're, um, you're at Gilbert and Tobin, you're doing three days a week there, and then you've got um, time outside focused on your own business that you're growing. Um, people assumed that you were doing something else at the time though, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as soon as you say that you work part-time and, and um, I should caveat that I have a, a wonderful 
coach actually who is male and he um he said you should never ever say you work part-time you don't work part-time Kate you work 0.6 you work flexibly mm-hmm. and um you don't tell anyone you work part-time because assume as soon as you say you work part and you don't work part-time you work two jobs but you, as soon as you say you work part-time people will assume that you have children or that you're got maternal duties or that you don't take um your or you run the risk of of people um, assuming that you don't take your career seriously, that you've got, um, you know, your your mindset somewhere else, which I thought was really interesting at the time that he said that to me. But gosh, it has been powerful um, because you do have people flippantly say, "Oh yes, you know, she works part time just in knowledge originally," and it didn't bother me to begin with because I was like, "Oh, you know, this is just some money coming in because." I want to be able to build my business. And then as it morphed into this more, I'm really passionate about um, change and transformation and creating value and improving processes and connecting people and this sort of innovation space, such a buzzword now, um, that um, why can't you be respected as a woman working on a flexible arrangement and why can't you have leadership potential um, and partnership potential on a point six? And why, why can there not be job sharing in this sort of position? And surely it's all around communication and um, being able to share the role and, and cover the full-time capacity. Like what, what is the obstacle to that? Like why? And then, and then having boundaries, like why can't I run a successful business um, on a lean model and then also be respected and have aspirations to be a leader in my 0.6 arrangement Mm. and uh, I think that's where the fire grew again (laughs) and uh yeah I've become really passionate about um proving that that's possible I think a big part of that is about working for a firm that is progressive and willing to support you in that um but also about you uh, advocating for what you want and and making people aware of, of what you want to achieve so that they can help put the steps in place to get you there uh, because people can't read your mind and, you know, it's a no until you've asked. So, yeah. Brilliant advice. Um, I would love your perspective and you might be able to comment more on the law than other areas, but, you know, another cur- you know, thing I'm curious about um, and it seems to be a problem that we haven't yet sort of cracked the solution to, but if I look at the ASX 200 as an example, Um, There's a lot of focus on uh, women in leadership roles. At the board level, we've we've cracked over the 30%, which was a target that was set some time ago. So that's some reason to celebrate. There's been movement there. But at the executive level, there really hasn't been movement. Mm. And, you know, in the last two years, 50 CEO appointments, three of them were female, um, three or six, small small number regardless. What's going on? Why are we not seeing, you know, from your perspective or point of view, why are we not seeing more movement? I think from my perspective, at least, um, that time period where you become the senior person um, or you sort of start that level of mastery in wherever area you are in whichever business often coincides with a time when you're also thinking about family Um, whether that is just finding a life partner because you've been so career focused, there hasn't been the opportunity to find that life partner and or you found the life partner, but you haven't had any opportunity to think about 
having children and all of a sudden you're worried that it's going to pass you by and so you've got to sort of get cracking so to speak if that's what's on your agenda um and there seems to be almost a penalty for for doing that there isn't really this nobody holds space at the moment well very few companies hold space for women to be able to properly step out and have children if that's what they want to do um, and then re-enter in a way that supports them in that lifestyle for that time period until the children go to school and I think a lot of people find that a lot of women I mean I can't talk for everybody and I'm and I'm definitely not talking for all businesses because I know there are some that are incredibly supportive but um it's very difficult to juggle small children at home and like a high powered career, definitely not on five days a week for most people, which is usually what's expected at an executive level um, to be able to be there for your children and be there for your role or your team um, is difficult juggle. And there's that expectation that women should have it all type thing or women can do it all. And I don't think it's reasonable. I think we can have it all at different times. Um, but if we're going to have it all at once, then there needs to be some give and take from the employer as well. Um, that's why so many women seem to step out at this stage and start their own businesses and create the flexibility and profitable businesses in these amazing business models that are very different to what's out there in the norm that suit them and their family and their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And then they can step back into, you know, uh, a, a traditional executive CEO or corporate flying career again once they have some more flexibility but um when children are older or maybe not because it's you know I, I mean I only have little children at the moment I have not experienced older children I understand it's quite involved again when they're in um teenagehood but um yeah I don't think we've worked it out properly yet I think there are some amazing women in senior positions that are advocating for it but I think there are a lot of minds that need to change and I think we've come a really long way in the last sort of 50 years but I think we've got a, a still a long way to go and there needs to be a lot more focus on equality and there needs to be a lot more focus on um, there being no penalty for stepping out to have a child if that's the case or just stepping out to have a break or uh, whatever it may be, because not everybody wants to have children, but um, I think more awareness around life choices, um, particularly those that affect women and not being penalised for that, because where do people think men come from? I mean, they were all born uh, as well. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm a bit fiery about it. Probably not podcast appropriate. <laughs> not at all. But, um, uh, yeah. what, I, what I wanted to ask was people will watch this and, you know, you, you're you a self-proclaimed um, extrovert. Um, you've got this, you know, wonderful motto in your family background about anything's achievable with guts and determination and that sort of stuff. Do you have moments of self-doubt? All the time. All the time. Yeah, all the time. Massive imposter syndrome often. Yeah, all the time. And uh, half, half, half the time it's about acknowledge. I think you have to feel that and acknowledge it and then push through it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like feel it till you become it, I think. It's like those power poses that Amy Cuddy talks about. This I use them all the time and that's why I think feel it till you become it is the thing rather than fake it till you make it. Yeah. Or um, Because a, like a three-minute power pose automatically lets your body physiologically ex 
create more testosterone, it creates more confidence and scientifically will help you feel more powerful and perform better. And I think channeling that into an imposter syndrome situation, because most of the time you can absolutely do whatever it is that you think that you can't. It's, it's about showing up and feeling like, like tricking your body into feeling like that you can do it and, and saying no to that voice that is saying, oh, you know, you, you, haven't, you haven't been working for a year and a half, so, you know, you're totally out of the loop. Or, um, you know, you only have three of the things on the job description rather than ten, and so, you know, you shouldn't apply for this. Or um, there, this person's going to definitely say no to you, so you shouldn't even bother asking. All those things, you just throw them out the window. And I think you just tell yourself, I only live once, and if I don't do this, I think I would regret it. Um, and you don't want to live with any regrets. So, I mean, go for it. So you you power pose I... all the time. I am such a big power pose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am a very big power pose. And you can do it subtly. Like you don't have to do the full superwoman <laughs> pose. But even just standing there, like creating space. All about creating space. So like putting your hands on your hips and um, your feet firmly planted on the ground is a really good one. If ever you're in like a conversation or a meeting where you're standing up and you sort of need a boost or you're dealing with a difficult conversation um, or even um, when you're in a meeting sitting and making sure your bottom is like really firmly planted in the seat and your shoulders are back and you've got your hands calmly resting on your legs and you can feel your feet planted on the ground. That also is, you know, a power pose as well. It doesn't have to be that traditional, you know, hands behind your head, feet up on the desk type thing. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's so powerful. I use them all the time. And mantras. Mantras are the other thing that I swear by. Um, yeah, walking through rooms uh, saying, yeah, actually, I can. I can do this. I can do this. Beautiful segue. because that. Yeah. But that is it. That is where it's come from. Um, it is absolutely where it's come from. Telling yourself, visualizing that you can do something, telling yourself that you can do something. Uh, that's how athletes train. Um, I don't see why that's not something that you could use in everyday life. And it absolutely helps. And there's a lot of science about that, that if you yeah. actually really clearly visualize something, your brain can't tell the difference. No, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not doesn't. quite like the secret, but it's close. <laughs> That never worked for me. So no, no, no. <laughs> so um, let's let's move on then to this wonderful story. Um, and um, you pivoted. Well, COVID arrived. Yeah. Where did that come from? Oh my goodness! Yeah, talk about carpet being pulled out of uh, from underneath you for like you know the whole of the world. <laughs> Um, yeah, Sheilan was, I had my second child in December, 2019 and Sheilan was doing really well in 2019. Um, and I just invested a whole lot more in inventory than, than we do normally, um, to prepare for a growth year in 2020. And we we're really pumped about that. And we've done forecasting around it and we've done trend analysis and we're like, you know, people are really wanting to, to get this sort of exclusive range that there's only limited pieces and they're this really beautiful statement out there, leathers. And um, so that was all designed and curated and um, manufactured and paid for and shipped and arrived um, late January and early February. And COVID happened in March and uh, there was no, like consumer confidence just dropped through, through the floor. Um, 
the, the problem that my product was serving is essentially commuting. And so people weren't doing that. Like as lovely as my customers are buying handbags to transport things from the kitchen to the home office is not a necessity. It's not the kind of thing yet. No, yeah, no. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I have the most amazingly loyal customer base. Um, but yeah, I really needed to think about what I was doing. You know, sales dropped by more than 40%. Um, freight and logistics and material and supply all increased by more than 30%. Um, you know, I was at home with two little boys. We were staying in regional Victoria for that year because it was much easier having an outdoor area than um, in Carlton. I was in the very privileged position to be able to use a, a house that my parents weren't staying at. Um, and my husband was commuting to Melbourne. And so I was sort of having three nights at home alone with the boys until I was very fortunate to have my mother there for, I think, six or eight weeks of one of the lockdowns, which was an absolute godsend. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, I had a child who was really sick with reflux. Um, and so there wasn't much, um, there wasn't much sleep happening. I had postnatal depression as well because I was just juggling so much stuff and um, I had this child that I couldn't console and that was incredibly upsetting. Um, I had a very active three-year-old and I had this business that was dying and I was just um, uh, so upset that so many other businesses were also suffering and I wanted to do something, anything um, that could make some sort of difference and it didn't matter how small it was. Um, I needed to do something for me personally to feel better about the situation and and I posted a top um I'm a massive fan of um slogan tops from like forever and I purchased this superhero top actually with a friend in California while I was on the women's executive leadership uh -huh. training program called superhero and another one that says no pain no champagne um but this, I was wearing this, I put the superhero one on and had a really terrible night with the boys. I was, you know, home alone in regional with like no one around and uh, said, you know, women are superheroes. We can do anything. Mm. Uh, you know, pep talk to myself, um, my personal Instagram, not the Sheline Instagram. And uh, I had so many people um, identify with the messaging, like direct message me from the, the post or all, all like... Um, family and friends obviously not not a public thing and they had said gosh you know you should make a top that says walk fearlessly that's your tagline I mean I would buy something like that and then that, that's where it started I thought gosh you know something because I, it hasn't been possible to manufacture the handbags here as much as I would have loved um I I really tried to to do that and explore it here but to be able to produce something under a thousand dollars with that much leather at the construction sophistication and at that scale was just really too difficult. Um, and, but a, but a sweatshirt, I thought if that's something that I could gather as many other small businesses as possible together and produce something with a slogan that is not necessarily anything to do with my brand, but more about this group of people coming together to do something that's positive, that's like feel good, that benefits all of them, and, um, you know, that showcases the skills we have in, here in Australia. Like, uh, 
I am by no means the first person to produce something Australian made, um, but I think I'm representative of sort of the average person that doesn't know a whole lot about garment manufacturing and was completely shocked about um, the insight that I found and then have become so incredibly passionate about shining a light on it. And then the aligned messaging obviously is that um, supporting local business is obviously so incredible. It's, you know, uh, important. It's the lifeblood of our community it's like the social fabric of our community it's what makes our towns and suburbs have their unique feel you know it's those places that know you by name um, it's your friends and your family businesses um, and I think we all need to play a part in their survival and the only way we can do that is if we come together and actually we can <laughs> and uh, that was the point yeah, you've produced these um, gorgeous windsheeters, and as soon as I saw, and we didn't know each other at this point. As soon as I saw the story, I purchased mine. Thank you. Um, and uh, and I'll make sure that um, for people watching the um, interview, we'll make sure that they can access a link to to go and see the the video that was made about how you kind of produce them and all of the people that you pulled together to do that it's all about the people yeah and they and I didn't really pull them all together they all were so willing to come on board and it was again that generosity of spirit they were absolutely I'm indebted to them yeah. they were absolutely picking me up and um just the time giving their giving their intel and their guidance and their skill on how best to pull this project together because they were equally passionate about it being every element Australian because that is actually quite unique and I didn't realise that that was as unique as it was um, until, until doing that process. And I think it was absolutely a passion project that turned into something that's, uh, that's going to be a staple part of SheLine um, and it was something that brought me a lot of joy in a time where I was finding everything really difficult and having all these really positive conversations uh, where I was learning new things and um, having adult conversations that weren't with babies, not that my babies are beautiful, but um, and doing something that was business for good. Um, and, you know, if, if, if I was going to be killed, I was going to go out all, all flames and glory and um, hopefully creating some awareness and picking up some other people and um, giving them some marketing and PR and hopefully some money as well. Um, and, and, and ideally saving the business. So congratulations, because I know it's been very successful. Um, I did want to flag with you, and I, I flagged it before, that it was interesting to me because I, I did buy one straight away. Thank but you. I did hear feedback from some people around, well, I'm not going to pay that for a windsheeter. Um, how do you respond to that? I, I completely understand the comment, um, but I think that's why the campaign is so incredibly important and that's why I was so, uh, it was absolutely critical that I made a professional video. Um, originally, I had gone around to all of the makers and videoed them on my phone and I have all of this spectacular footage about their stories and how manufacturing was all in Australia 20, 30 years ago and how so much of it has gone overseas when the world sort of opened up with the internet and everything became so accessible. And now how COVID is sort of bringing to the fore that we need to be less reliant on offshore and we need to be able to be doing things here and that actually we have these amazing artisans and skills here, but if we want to keep them here, we need to make some choices about that. Um, 
And I think people have got used to being able to buy things um, for a certain amount because they have not necessarily understanding that what's been involved in the process of them being created and where they've been created and how they've been created and by whom they, they have been created. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, I had no idea that so many hands touched a garment and how many um, things were involved in something that I thought was relatively straightforward that isn't. I mean, I'm sure that you, if you spoke to anyone in the fashion industry, they would sort of laugh and be like, of course I understand that and I know all of this. And, yes, we've been talking about this for ages. Um, but I, I think that's why it's even more important that I'm yelling it from the rooftop because I am very representative of the person that doesn't know uh, that I think should. So and, and if we don't, um, you know, do something about it, we will lose the skills and we'll lose the ability to be able to do it all here. And it is such an opportunity to create so many jobs and to bring the wealth back here and to support Australians. So essentially, in answer to that question, um, you just explain, you know, I'm a small business. I don't have the buying power of a much bigger business. So I'm, I don't have the ability to negotiate margins at all, like a really big business on quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also buying premium, 100% Australian everything. And as part of that, Australian people are paid Australian fair work wages. Um, and they all work in places that are ethically responsible and sustainable. Um, and as part of that, you know, you're benefiting so many people's jobs and roles and livelihoods. And in fact, it's a really reasonable price for the top. Um, and, you know, you should have a spring in your step because you're supporting 22 businesses when, when you buy something from us because each of those businesses is part of the supply chain and contributes to the end product. And there's no doubt that that was the element of the story that got me to, to buy it. Um, you know, it's very um, emotional, um, I think it's the it's the it's the human part of owning a business, and I, I I think that needs to be talked about more. I think that there's so there's this weird thing about you know business being has to be cutthroat and it has to be really non emotional and 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 not um and and at arm's length and you know rah rah rah. It's all very macho. I don't know to me anyway. And I felt like there is so much more strength in. Uh, revealing the human side and and the struggle and the love and the connection and the magic of community and how people come together and 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 offer support and lift you up and how all of these people are supporting all of the other people in the process like it's just this everybody's supporting one another was just so lovely and it was something that needed to be shared beyond the fact that it also needed to be shared so that people can understand what is involved and 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 have more appreciation of manufacturing in Australia around garments anyway and how are you now just to check in with you oh I'm good I'm good I just feel like we need to be more open about talking about that there shouldn't be stigma around it I mean I think we should talk about um you know, we should be open to talking about miscarriages and we should be open to be talking about depression and we should be open to be talking about postnatal because it's hard. Um, all of those things. I think, I think there needs to be more conversations around hard things and more real talk mm-hmm. so that people can actually grow and, um, you know, 
feel and understand that it's okay if they've experienced that too and not feel like they're alone mm-hmm. it's like going to one of those you know career things and you have this insanely amazing woman stand up and they say you know I've achieved all of this and you're like gosh I really want to do that and they don't tell you about any of the hard stuff mm-hmm. I feel like we need to share the hard stuff because yeah. I think it's the hard stuff that normalizes the fact that it is hard work to get there and it doesn't just happen and so um yeah, it's 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 about guts and determination most of the time, unfortunately, and um, and people need to normalize that. And I think that's the only way we're going to change the mindset of big business as well around how they can better support women because it is hard. It's not oh, I just got here and it was, you know, I mean, I you know, obviously they've got there because they've worked tooth and nail to get there, and people need to understand that it shouldn't be like that because it's not necessarily the same journey for men. Kate, the final question that I ask everybody is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like and does it need to change? Does it need to change? Um, I, I don't know. In brave feminine leadership uh, is like my mother <laughs> in a nutshell. She is, she is brave and strongly feminine and an amazing leader and I feel like... Um, yeah, she encapsulates that statement absolutely. Um, I think there are a lot of really brave feminine leaders that we have currently um, in our world, um, but we need more. And I think the only way we can get that is if um, everybody talks about it more and there's a lot more open, honest, uncomfortable conversations around it. I think um, absolutely like the One Roof um conference recently there needs to be a lot more um conversations that are about the unspoken but they need to not just be with women they need to be with men in the room and um they need to be with men coming with an ear open um as well and um i think yeah there needs to be a stronger focus on soft skills and empathy and I think soft skills is, is it needs to be lifted up again. I think sharp skills or um, technical skills are very important, but I think leaders need really highly developed soft skills. Mm-hmm. And I think women quite intuitively seem to have that in spades um, and, and we need more of that. Mm-hmm. Kate, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and with joining the conversation. Um, oh, no, it's the other way around. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Fantastic to have you here. So thank you so much. Thank you. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.